Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. This is podcast number 159. And uh, before we get into uh, today's topic and the interview with today's guest, who's awesome, and like I said, we could do a whole episode on her awesomeness, um, I just want to tell everyone a little bit about what's on the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart community board. So, uh, first up, July 1st is Get PT First Day. So if you are a physical therapist you are listening to, and you're listening to this podcast, in a couple of days it will be July 1st. So I, if you're on social media, so if you're on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Periscope or Meerkat or LinkedIn, whatever you're using, use the hashtag GetPTFirst and send out a tweet, send out a, a post on Facebook about uh, why you love what you do as a PT and why people would benefit from seeing you. Pretty simple. And if you are a PT, if you're a PT student, doesn't matter. You can tweet it out, Facebook it, Instagram it, what have you. For your patients and for the public, you can actually have them go to getptfirst.com. And on there, there are there's a tab that says for the public. And there are longer narrative written, longer narrative stories written by uh, different PTs, just in uh, layman's terms, talking about why you should go to a P, go and see your local PT. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, if you are uh, interested in. Uh, I don't know, uh, certification, residency, fellowship, check out nextgenpt.com. They have all of that stuff. They've got continuing education, study courses, certifications, residencies, fellowships for physical therapists. They've got a great staff, and uh, they've got some really great things lined up. So check out nextgenpt.com. If you are interested in getting a residency, fellowship, certification, when you check out, you can use the code HEALTHYWEALTHYSMART5 and get 5% off anything you off of those residencies and fellowships. So that's nextgenpt.com. And now today, so let me back it up. Last week and on our uh, community board, I told everyone to go to gofundme.com slash traumaawaremassage because the ever-so-wonderful Raven Sara Trevilian has started this page in order to um, integrate trauma-aware massage therapy at uh, her school, the Pacific Northwest College of Allied Sciences. So today, I'm thrilled to have as my guest, Dr. Raven Sara Trevilian. Um, as, as a side note, I saw her speak last year at the San Diego Pain Summit. She's going to be speaking again in 2016. And she's just like the coolest person ever. So if you get a chance to see her or follow her on social media, she's fairly awesome. So she has been a licensed massage practitioner in Washington State since 1992. In 2006, she completed her PhD in biomedical and health informatics at the University of Washington School of Medicine. She practiced at the Refugee Clinic at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle for seven years, providing massage therapy for pain relief, insomnia, and other system symptoms for refugees living with the after effects or having survived war, genocide, and other forms of traumas. We'll talk about that a little bit more during the interview. She has served the profession as a board member for the Massage Therapy Foundation 
and as chair of the Best Practices Committee. She is currently completing a book on massage, re massage research and information literacy and is developing a master's degree program in advanced practice professional massage therapy for vulnerable and underserved populations. So, uh, Raven, welcome to the show. So psyched to have you on. Thank you, Sharon. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I am, like, honored to have you on the show. Um, like I said, after hearing you speak last year at the San Diego Pain Summit, uh, Sandy Hilton and I were just like, she's amazing. And, and, and I really encourage people to get to know you because you've got such passion and you're so thoughtful and inspiring and, you know, literally almost brought people to tears um, at the at the San Diego Pain Summit. And what I'd like to do today is kind of ask you, how did you get to where you are now? So I think for massage therapists, it's definitely maybe what people would not think of as No, as I, I, I think you? so. It was kind of a long and winding path. And I didn't get into massage until my second career, actually. I took a long way to get there. I did my schooling in Alabama and in the Midwest, and I just, I found my way to a course in Southeast Asian Studies, So that's what I did for my master's degree. So I loved the University of Michigan. I was very happy there, but the climate was too hard on me. Just, I couldn't take another Michigan winter. So I decided I wanted to come out to the West Coast, and I started working in the software industry out here just because it was booming at the time, and there were lots of jobs, and anybody with a degree in practically anything could get a job, but I knew somebody through connections in the refugee community. I had happened to come to Seattle, which is a place that has a lot of, South, of, of refugees from Vietnam, from Cambodia, from Laos, and from other places. So my friend, who was an interpreter for the Hmong population at Harborview Medical Center Refugee Clinic, knew that I was studying massage at night while I was working in the software industry during the day, and he asked me if I'd be interested in taking it over for a woman who was doing massage, but who was about to go on pregnancy leave. So I said, sure. And I didn't know what I was getting into. I had no idea how profound and life-changing that was going to be. It was, it was just amazing to get to the clinic, to be taken seriously as a full-fledged member of the healthcare team, along with the doctors, the nurses, the psychologists, the physician's assistants, the interpreters that I was working with. And for people who have been through so much, to trust me to be alone in a room with them, to put my hands on them, and to trust me to hear what they've been through, their journeys, the things that had happened to them, I had no idea when I started how profound that was going to turn out to be. It was really life-changing. And when you say, you know, they're trusting you with their stories, I mean, these are, are not sort of your run-of-the-mill, I had a quote-unquote tough childhood story, you know? No. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, sometimes I would go into the clinic and I was irritated because it had taken me a long time to find a parking space. And then that irritation was totally put into perspective when a woman was telling me about a child that she had lost 
on the journey from her home where the war had driven her out and trying to get to the refugee camp to get here. It really, it really put into perspective how lucky and how sheltered I had been to that point in my life. People are telling me things about tremendous personal loss. They're telling me about things that they never thought they would experience. People were raised in traditional families, in traditional female roles, and then they end up being the ones who take care of their, their elderly parents and their younger brothers and sisters to get them safely through the jungle to the refugee camp. And they, they it's like they had no training for this. They were supposed to just, you know, uh, go through what was expected of them. And then life handed them a great big change. And they rose to the occasion and they dealt with it. And now they're trying to figure out, okay, this totally changed my identity. What do I do? And the fact that they can talk about these things with me, I always felt honored because it's not easy to open up about traumatic memories or about big life-changing things. It's much easier to say, oh yeah, I feel fine. You know, just this hello, how are you kind of superficial discussion. When you talk about deep things, you're exposing yourself again and you're making yourself vulnerable. So I always took this as, this is a tremendous gift I've been given. So what do I need to do in order to prove that I'm worthy of the trust that people are placing in me with this gift. And and what did you do in response to that? I learned some things about what do people expect you to do. So I studied shiatsu, for example, not because I wanted to be a shiatsu practitioner, but because the women from some of these cultures don't like to take their clothes off. They have a, they have, they're very modest traditions. And so if I was able to do what they expected, which is do pushing and squeezing compressions through their clothing, then I'm giving them more of what they expected. It feels more natural to them. And then it shows that I'm making an effort to learn what they expect rather than me saying, okay, well, I'm here. Now you have to come in and you have to take off your clothes and you have to get under the sheet. So trying to learn as much as I could about where they were coming from so that I could offer them things that they expected to make them feel more comfortable and to communicate to them that I really care about them. Not just, oh, I'm coming in and this is a transaction for 45 minutes and you go, but that I really do want to understand what they're looking for and I want to understand what they're telling me. Things like that. So how do, how do I go more than the extra mile in order to make a safe, welcoming, comfortable environment in which people may feel comfortable opening up if they want to about things that are very, very profound and sometimes very, very raw still, even decades later. And how do you, as the practitioner, you know, you seem to me like a very empathetic person. So how do you, as a practitioner, not take on, that's a lot of heavy stuff, you know, talking about losing family members and genocide and and leaving war-torn areas. So as a practitioner, how do you not take that on uh, to the point where it, it can affect you to, to the point of burnout or to the point of, you know, not wanting to work with that population anymore? Because I think that's difficult. It is difficult. You're right. You've, you've hit the nail on the head with that. 
there's a huge turnover in personnel and people who deal with refugees for this reason because the need is so very, very great. And vicarious traumatization or compassion fatigue or just plain and simple burnout, it's a huge occupational hazard. One of the things I'm doing in the, the master's degree program I'm building is I'm, I'm developing clinician self-care as a positive affirmative responsibility, right up there with autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, dignity, and justice, the five principles of biomedical ethics. Mm-hmm. I'm, putting, uh, I'm building in a, second, uh, a sixth one, clinician self-care, because in order to work with this population effectively, you have to make sure that your boundaries are strong and that you don't take, take it on or you will burn out. You will not be able to care. You will start trying to get your needs met in ways that are inappropriate. It's just the way that we as humans operate. And I have to give a lot of credit for these ideas to Eric Strum. He's a local lawyer and mental health care professional who teaches. And I took a course of his where he dwelt on it. He's the one who actually came up with the idea of the sixth pillar, the five usual pillars of biomedical ethics, and then clinician self-care as an affirmative duty. Because you will burn out. I actually did a couple of times have to take a vacation from the work simply because it was so much. I wasn't adequately prepared in school, mm-hmm. and I don't want to throw off on my teachers. It's just that they had no idea what environment they were preparing to send you, and they had never heard of the refugee clinic, right? So you have to work on your own boundaries. You have to work on getting your needs met, and you have to build this in affirmatively to what you do or else the work will consume you because there is so much need. There is so much need out there that nobody can meet it. So you have to, you have to protect yourself, go in, and you have, to, you have to accept that sometimes incremental gains are the best we get. If I can help the man who lost his wife after coming to this country, if I can help him get good night's sleep two nights a week instead of zero nights a week like before, that's the game that I'm going to have to find how to, t- I, I need to take joy from that game. Even mm. though it sounds very modest, it's still a positive, it's still a win, a and win. it still makes a huge difference to him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how do you respond to uh, the question that I'm sure people have asked you this in the past, but how do you respond to, well, how can massage therapy help a refugee? It's very, very profound. It's a good question, though. It's not obvious. I would not have thought it obvious myself when I first did it. I was like, really? Massage? I'm surprised. But for one thing, in the cultures that the refugees come from, and sometimes the, the culture, the, the refugees make use of traditional Chinese medicine as well, sometimes the most unexpected places. We did a poll, uh, our survey on who's using what kind of treatments, and a lot of the East African refugees in the clinic were using Chinese medicine because they were living in the areas where it was available, and they were trying everything they could in the hopes of finding something that helped the pain go away. So they come from cultures where this is an expected part of medical care. So it provides a, a, a vehicle for communication. It provides commonalities. So it puts people at ease. A lot of, I think, what massage does for people is really very nonspecific. The act of feeling comfortable and safe and relaxed and 
nurtured just even for a little while, just that period of time outside of when you have to think about, okay, how am I going to get the bills paid today? How am I going to get the food on the table today? I think that by recreating what they expected from their cultures and communicating that, yes, I care about you as a human being. I want to make things in our time together as safe and comfortable and caring for you as I possibly can make it. I think that goes a long way. And sometimes we combine it with touch therapy. We combine touch therapy with talk therapy. Some of the sessions I was alone with them. Mm-hmm. Other sessions I was working with them while they were talking to the psychologist. And sometimes that would trigger the most unexpected connections. You asked about burnout. One of the things that really freaked me out, this is also a story that I told in San Diego. Mm-hmm. I was working with someone while she was talking to the psychologist via the interpreter. And while I was working on her back, she told about uh, an auto accident she had seen in Seattle at a huge intersection here in town. And she said that the people in the car got decapitated and she saw their heads rolling through the intersection. And I just wasn't ready for that. This was one of the things that, yes, I had to learn, okay, whoa, this is shocking, but I'm okay, she's okay now, I don't take this on. But then later, looking into it, such an accident had not happened in Seattle. The combination of her talking with the psychologist about her experience and of me touching her and of her being safe in the here and now in Seattle had somehow caused a memory to come up, but it had been expressed through her life in Seattle now. When she's talking about heads rolling on the ground, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I'm positive that she was talking about in Cambodia. She saw this. Mm. But the combination of being able to talk to the psychologist, the combination of whatever we were doing on her back that helped her relax or helped her be in the moment, helped her to feel safe enough to where when that memory bubbled up, she was able to channel it in terms of what she's, she's seeing in Seattle nowadays where she's safe. So I talked with the psychologist about that after she left because that memory threw me for a curve. And it should, I mean, now that I'm more experienced, I should have been ready for it, I see in retrospect, but it, it was shocking at the time just because I was so new and I came into this with no preparation at all. And he said that he thought it was very good that she was able to take control of aspects of that memory and that it happened in a place where she was safe rather than whatever the original memory connected to when she wasn't safe. So we build an environment. I think that's a huge part of what we do. We build a safe, caring environment where they're free to disclose or not disclose to the degree that they want to. And then if they want to, they can take control of certain aspects of it in a way that they couldn't do back when they were fleeing whatever mm-hmm. it was that pushed them to come here. And I mean, that's such a, a powerful, uh, I don't want to say, it's an empowering place, you know. So, so you must, when working there, I mean, you must have left every day feeling like you were such a huge part of empowering that person to to open up and to be a little bit freer and maybe a little a little less afraid. It helped me a lot in in what I searched for meaning. I 
in my own work, I need to find meaning, and I have never, ever lacked for that in my work with refugees because it's so profound what what they entrust me with. It's like I can see the results, but it's them doing the work. It's not me. It's in a way, it's like I'm I'm gifted by being a participant in what they're doing, and they're coming here and they're coping and they're resilient, and on the bus, people look at them, and what they see is somebody who's below the poverty line, who dresses not like most people in Seattle dress, who may not know the language. The children are having to help them get around because the children are fluent in English and they're not. But what I learned from what I was gifted with at the clinic was, there really, there is a core of strength and resilience and it's my honor to be able to nurture that. If I can help by creating a safe environment, then they have the opportunity to make that, that spark glow even brighter. And I think for a lot of it, that's why the, the, the burnout didn't hurt, hit me as much as it could have. Because I went there thinking that, okay, I'm going to just go home in tears and curl up in the fetal position yes. every single day. Exactly. But that's no. what I would think, yeah. too. I would I I feel like my first yeah. week there, I would go through like 20 boxes of tissues. Yes, that's what I expected at first. And it's hard, and it did get to me. I'm not saying it didn't. But what I did not expect and what I learned after I began working there is the feeling of inspiration, the feeling of sheer awe. When you look at how somebody can get up again and keep going, even after something that would turn me into a puddle of jelly, mm -hmm. they just keep going. I, can't, I cannot imagine what it's like to lose a child. And they experienced it. They lived it. They come here, and then they, they draw a circle around it so that it doesn't affect their kids here. Mm. You know? It's yeah. like it's, it's inspiring the way that people are capable of coping and being resilient when they need to. And I was honored and privileged to be able to witness it. I mean, and, I, you know, I workers like yourself and, and the, your colleagues at uh, the refugee clinic at Harborview Medical Center... I mean, I never even heard of this place, and it, it seems like it's just uh, such an inspiring and beautiful place to be because of the work that you all do for people who come to you with nothing. Mm -hmm. they, have, they have nothing. The people I worked with, I was, I was truly honored to be a part of that team. Nobody at all is working at the refugee clinic to get rich. I mean, it's, it's just a fact. And while most of the physicians and nurses are getting paid a salary, I was getting paid out of grants. So sometimes it was a paid position. Sometimes it was a volunteer position. Massage therapy is regarded as a healthcare profession in the state of Washington, mm -hmm. but we're not seen as sitting at the, the big people's table in the same way, except with my colleagues. My colleagues never, ever once treated me as anything other than a full participant on the team. But... Because of the pay situation there, me being paid sometimes and not other times, them being paid all the time, but certainly not what they could be earning in private practice on the east side, it was one of the most committed and caring and empathetic and just, it was my, I loved being a part of that team. I, I just, I, I can't tell you how much I love going into work. Like I said, I was afraid at first I would be, you know, going through 20 boxes of Kleenex, like you said. No, to see, the, to see how much people care about their clientele and to see how the clients 
grew and flourished under under people caring about them. That was an important part of it. Now, I don't want to make it sound like everything had a happy ending. This is a group of people who is being kicked around a lot by fate, and sometimes random awful things would happen. So I don't want to make it sound like every story had a happy ending. I, mean, I that would not be doing justice to my clients at all. But in terms of what you would expect, given what they started with, versus what they really accomplished, they made a real difference. They 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 worked hard, and they were resilient, and they coped. And I was I was blown away by how much that was true. I I, I mean it's. It's just wow, you know. I guess that's the only thing I could say is wow. What a um, an exceptional group of people, and I mean, I, I think it's something to be very proud of. Um, and now, so let's sort of segue into the trauma aware massage therapy. So I'm sure you're working at the refugee clinic has a big part in this trauma-aware massage therapy. So can you talk a little bit more about what that is and um, why you feel it's so important? I'd love to talk about that. It's, it's, a, it's a project near and dear to my heart. Uh, when I started, so we were talking before uh, we started recording, we were talking about the difference between physical therapy education and massage therapy education in the United States. Washington, among all the states, is one of the ones that treats massage therapists as healthcare providers. And it's very clear that in some ways we're taken seriously and appreciated and reimbursed by insurance in some cases. But our education doesn't yet reflect the status that other healthcare professionals do. What we have is we have a 500, 600, 700 hour program at the vocational technical level to prepare us for practice. And it's just not enough. I mean, to, to teach just massage itself takes up most of that time. To teach things like, how do you provide a safe place for people who've been traumatized? What do you do when somebody tells you on the massage table, I want to die? All of those kind of things. We don't get enough preparation. And I'm learned in the clinic. And sometimes, I hate this, but it, there's nothing I can do to fix it. I learned at the expense of my clients. I have on occasion tried to do something nice and I'm going to have the client burst into tears because mm -hmm. what I intended from my cultural background did not come off to them at all the same way. To them, it came off as I was mocking them. Uh, there, for, here's an example. Okay, so in Cambodian language class, our textbook was written during the 1970s before the, the war ended. So people were dealing with embassies and things like that. So I had very formal pronouns. So we were saying like Mr. and Mrs. to each other. So I used that in the clinic. And some of my clients who were from rural Cambodia thought I was mocking them. I would have spoken to them if I was in Cambodia, I was spoken to them using relative terms like grandmother or aunt or uncle, something like that. I didn't know that. But when I started using the, the really high level terms for them, they thought it was mockery, which is not at all what I intended. Okay. So things like that. I learned on the job. And what I want to do, nothing that specific, because it's like, if you want to work with Cambodian populations, that's an important thing to know. But in general, populations who are traumatized, you want to be aware to what kinds of things trigger them. And I didn't know that when I first started. For example, veterans returning from the war 
as a group, not every individual, but as a group, they don't like to sit with their backs to the door because that's the way you can be taken by surprise. Well, I didn't know that. So the first time I set up my chair at the Seattle stand down and I just innocently put it with the back facing the door. Well, I didn't get any clients. I was like, what's going on? Why does nobody want a free massage? And then somebody pointed out to them, why don't you rotate to me? Why don't you rotate the table and see if you get, if you get more people coming in and looking for a massage? It works so much better. So things like that. Not the massage itself. I trust people to graduate from massage school knowing how to do massage. But things like, what do we need to, what do healthcare providers as a class know that we, just by virtue of our education, have not had time to learn about? Mm-hmm. What kind of things have been established already? Like in the, the, the mental health literature, there's a lot of information there about what is therapeutic relationship? How do you build a therapeutic alliance? There's a lot of overlap with that with us. And we're not talking, we're not counseling. I'm certainly not trying to turn people into counselors or into psychotherapists. But a lot of the aspects of the therapeutic uh, encounter are similar. So what work's been done there that we can leverage off of to better understand how we can go more than halfway so that our clients don't have to be educating us on basics, things like that. Yeah, no, and, that, and, and that, that's, that makes a lot of sense. And, and again, it's kind of like what you said before about the refugee clinic is it's all about building a safe environment. So learning these nuances as it relates to people who have been in traumatic experiences or been through traumatic experiences, it can only enhance that safe environment or, or add to that safe environment. Yes, absolutely. I want people not to have to learn on the job the way I did because it's a very it's a very inefficient way of figuring things out and mm-hmm. sometimes you get it wrong and then people get their feelings hurt and that's not at all what I ever intended. So what lessons I've learned, I want to pass along. What lessons there are in the literature that other clinicians have taken the time to write down and to share with others, I want to pass that along. I want... I want people to be able to do the work I did without having to go through the learning curve I had to go through. No, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's just, it's helping massage therapists. The, what, what I get from it is, you know, like you said, they learn massage. You know, you trust that, that their education has prepared them to massage someone. And, and mm-hmm. what you're doing is giving years and years of on-the-job training and lessons learned and failures and wins and putting it together so that they are better prepared to handle this wide variety of the population. Would that be correct? That's beautifully put. I don't think I could have said it better myself. Thank you, Karen. Oh, anytime. You can use it whenever you want. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And so, you know, who's helping you with this? Because there's no Um, way you're doing all this yourself. I have friends from the from the time of Seattle, of the refugee clinic and from other times. I have friends in the nonprofit world who are guiding me through what are the steps. So okay, I need a board of advisors to give me reality checks on things. So I'm working with a friend who's put together boards of directors for nonprofit organizations in the past. Mm-hmm. I have friends who are fundraisers. So I'm talking to them about okay, what is the best way to do this in order to ensure that some of the things I want to build in, like students not having to go into tons and tons of debt 
just to learn this can be implemented. Again, it's learning from other people's experience. And Seattle is an amazing nexus for people who care about the world, who care about global health, who care about making things better. And oddly enough, we were talking about rambling paths in the past. Even my software experience, a lot of the people I knew through the software world, I did not become one of the tech millionaires myself, unfortunately. But there are a lot of people out there who were in the software world who want to leave the world a better place than they found it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of social venture philanthropy here in Seattle. And I'm just finding that when I talk about what I want to do, doors are opening. It's not just refugees. Refugees is one population of five that I'm concentrating on initially. I want to to train people to work with vulnerable and underserved populations. So we're working with veterans, refugees, long-term caregivers, families and children living with cerebral palsy, and families and children living with fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm. And there's nothing magical about those last two conditions because there's tons of other conditions that people are living with, too. It's just that we had to start somewhere, sure. and so we have to build something, and then we'll, we'll be able to replicate it. by We'll make it sustainable by building on that success instead of trying to do everything at once. So a lot of people have specific interests. So in the veterans community, I'm finding people really want to help. People really want to be a part of this project in any way they can because they care so much about what they see people coming home with. Mm-hmm. It used to be there were injuries that would kill you on the battlefield. That's and true. now people are surviving that. That's but true. they're coming home and they're living with the long-term after effects of those injuries. And we haven't prepared what to do for it as a society. So people see a problem. And the idea that they could, that just what I'm trying to build could even be just a tiny part of a solution. People do want to get involved with it because they care so much. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. You know, years ago, my gosh, probably 10 years ago, maybe nine, eight, ten, nine, 10 years ago, I, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know if this is still going on, but it's something to look into. I don't know if they're still doing this contest, but American Express was doing this, um, I guess it was like a contest for uh, non-for-profits. And oh. yeah, it, it was, I was watching TV one night and it came on and I was like, oh, I have the best idea. I'm going to, I'm going to write an, an essay. And I'm going to send it in. And my idea was to have physical therapists across the country donate one hour a week to treat a returning veteran. Ah, and I think that did become, uh, I think that, that that idea did catch on. There's something called Hands for Heroes, which does that. Oh, cool. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great organization. The only problem with volunteer organizations is just that they can't meet the need. That That's all. I mean, it's like they do good work, but... Yeah. Volunteer massage on an occasional basis, uh, you know, it's, it's a drop in the bucket of the need that's out there. So what I'm hoping is that by training people who go on to train people who go on to train people, well, I want to magnify our efforts. I think all of this, I think Hands for Heroes, I think massage therapists who haven't been through the master's degree program, I think there's lots of opportunities for us to work together and figure out what makes sense for who to do? If we're all attacking the need together, we'll make better progress than if we're just all randomly putting out efforts, but we're not coordinating them in any way. Oh. So I'm definitely interested in what systemic solutions are out there. What possibilities for making systemic change are there by working together with our allies on this? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it, everything, you know, with anything, everything works better when you have the masses working towards one goal. And yes. and I guess the, the question that just came to me is, 
what is your goal for this? What is your goal for the Trauma Aware Massage Program? I want to hand it over. I want to pass the baton to a new generation of leaders who are going to take it in ways that I can't even imagine yet. It's going to be so awesome and profound, but I can't see it yet because they're going to come up with it. So basically, I probably will be involved with it for about 10 years before I retire. And in that 10 years, I want us to lay down the groundwork build relationships with the state. And because it's at the master's level, there's a thing in Washington law about who's considered a provider for purposes of reimbursement and for referral. So if we're at the master's level, we'll be able to be considered in that category. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that doors will open up magically. We've got a lot of policy work to do in the meantime. But I want to lay some groundwork with some projects. And then I want to see what seeds catch on and sprout and what ways they grow and in what ways people come up with things that I never dreamed, but I'm going to be so blown away by how awesome they are when I see what they come up with. I think that's, that's an, amazing, an amazing goal. And how can we help? How can people learn more about it? How can they help you if, they, if you need help? What can we do? Right now, we're in the development and planning phase. So if you're interested in fundraising, which we are, we, we can use funds to get the initial part started. We're also developing some income streams to make it be self-sufficient, but we're not there yet. So if, if you wanted to check out the GoFundMe page that Carrie mentioned earlier, that would be a tremendous help right there. It's GoFundMe.com slash Trauma Aware Massage. All three words run together, no hyphens or spaces or anything. And if you want to consider being a student, go to the website pncahs.com and check us out. We're going to be putting up more information through the month of July and August, and we're going to have a professional web designer helping us with this, which is part of what the fundraiser is going for. I'm doing it myself, and I'm not a web designer, so I'm going to get a pro in so that it's done right. We'll start taking applications in September for the first class that will start in September 2016. So if you want to give funds to help, we welcome supporters. If you're thinking about being a student, really check it out. Um, the requirements for being a student are basically you have to be able to get licensed and insured to practice in Washington State, and you have to have already a college degree. The, the last thing we want to do is to set up people in a difficult and challenging environment. So we, we want to make sure that people are going to be okay with doing college-level work because what we're doing is so new. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to do outreach. So working with other, other schools, working with other parts of the state, one of the things about the veterans program is Seattle, the, the Everett to Seattle to Olympia corridor is full of resources. Like I said, the need is tremendous, but the need is met best along the corridor that runs from Everett to Olympia. Once you get out to more rural parts of the state, on the other hand, you have veterans out there, but they may not have a VA within driving distance comfortably, or they may not have people who are informed about trauma, or they may be in such a small town, 200 people, that they don't want to see the, the only psychologist who lives in town because they have to see them in the grocery store after that. So we're going to be working on cultivating resources in other parts of the state as well. So if you'd like to be a part of this, please check out those websites and see what, what kind of things interest you. Uh, supporting us, 
maybe coming and studying with us, maybe just doing continuing education with us, uh, giving us ideas, suggestions for project. You happen to know somebody who needs, you know, we're, we're interested. The students will be developing their own projects, so we'll be taking ideas, sorting through them, figuring out what makes sense, what our capabilities can sustain at any given time, and then launching and trying them and trying to get things things planted so that the seeds take root and they grow into something sustainable. Yeah, and, and so if you want to be part of the program, you already have to be a licensed massage therapist. Oh, uh, you have, yes. By the time the program starts in September 2016, you have to be licensed. Yeah. And you have to be eligible to practice in Washington State. And since in massage, we don't have interstate portability hardly at all. That's a, that's a big can of worms right there. Uh-huh. And you have to be able to get insurance. So you have to have, a, I don't know, the license has to be unencumbered. So, yes, you have to be eligible to practice in Washington State. You have to be insurable. And you have to have shown by your bachelor's degree that your that college-level work is something that you already have done. Got it. Got it. Okay. So sort of important uh, requirements there to enter the program. And, again, yes. if, if anyone, if you want to go and help fund this program, like we've mentioned earlier, you can go to www.gofundme.com slash trauma-aware-massage. All one word, no periods, no hyphens, no weird little squigglies in between. Trauma-aware-massage. So gofundme.com slash trauma-aware-massage. And, um, you know, it, Raven, if, if you could sort of kind of sum up what you do and kind of what makes you tick and what, what really inspires you to sort of end our conversation here, what would that be? It's really important to me that my work has meaning. And the populations that I work with really, really give me the privilege of seeing people grappling with profound issues and coping and being resilient. And this is tremendous for me. It really, it's really very gratifying to me and I really feel honored to be a part of it. I I feel like basically my job is to pre- pre- to present an environment for people, and then the transformation that happens there. I make the conditions possible for change, and what people do with that opportunity is just phenomenal. So I really feel honored to be a part of this work I do, and it really it really when I look around and say, okay, what's the purpose of my life? I owe a lot of the answer to that to my clients. And what I see doing is taking this, taking the experiences that I've been privileged to share in and handing it to people, kind of like passing the baton. So like I said, I probably got another 10 work years or so before I retire. So I want to see this take root and I want to see people Growing massage into a bona fide healthcare profession that has a seat at the table with everybody else. And I want to see them promoting access to massage to clients who, because they're vulnerable and underserved, they don't normally have access to massage, whether it's they don't have insurance or they do have insurance, but their insurance doesn't offer massage or whatever. I want to improve the access to massage. I think the more people that we reach, the more people that we actually touch and get our hands on, 
the better it is for them and the better it is for massage in becoming a profession. The professionalization of massage is it's kind of a difficult path right now. But I think working together, we can make a real difference in this. And part of the professionalization, the payoff from professionalization is we'll get to be present and accessible for more people by means of this professionalization. And I think that's what makes it worthwhile. Yeah, and and so for everyone that's listening, that's why she's so awesome. Thank you. That's why she's so great. Thank you so, so now, much. Now do you see why Sandy Hilton and I were like almost in tears listening to her speak? Because of, <laughs> of, of exactly that, you know, and if, if every healthcare provider out there had uh, your attitude and, and your thoughtfulness and passion, then I think that what you're trying to do will be something that will certainly be realized. Thank you, Karen. It means a lot coming from you. I really, it really does. Yeah, and I, you know, anyway, I feel like I could go on all night, but um, we kind of have to wind things up here. But uh, I want to really thank you for coming on and and sharing with with the audience all that you do. And hopefully, people listening to this will respond the way that it seems most people do. Like you said. I just talk to people and they want to help. Well, it's because of who you are that they want to help um, and because what you're doing is such a worthy cause. So uh, GoFundMe.com slash TraumaWareMassage. Uh, Raven, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you again in San Diego next year and hearing you speak again. I'm looking forward to it too, Karen. Thank you for inviting me. I really do appreciate that. Oh, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today. Have a great rest of your week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.